This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there, there's a past period. You can hear it, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe they were still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I give it back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place, smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out welcome back folks to another episode of behind gray walls podcast a podcast about the old idaho state penitentiary and the men and women who resided and worked here my name's anthony and i'm actually in uh the admin building here with sam hey everybody and long distance with sky down in texas Hello, I'm back in Texas, but happy, so happy to be here. Oh, yeah, me too. It's been so long. <laughs> it has been. Just wanted to squeeze a little bit of that Texas summer in, right, Sky? <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I wanted to do. It's been a while. What a break we've had. Feels good to be back. Researching, digging up stories, telling stories. How's your uh, summer been, Sky? It's been so good. I uh, was a little itinerant this summer and uh, spent most of it in Denver, um, completely unexpectedly, but it was gorgeous. Uh, talk about beautiful weather. And I just got to play in, in Denver all summer. And, uh, you know, now it's time to buckle down for my very last year. So how about you guys? How was, how was the Idaho summer? It's been good, actually. It's been really good. It hasn't seemed extremely hot. Like, we had a few hot weeks, but... You know, it wasn't like, I feel like last year it was like two, three solid weeks of 100 plus degree weather. So, yeah, I remember that. That was brutal. Yeah. It's just flown by. I don't know if <laughs> you two feel like that, but I can't believe it's over. I am. I, yeah, yeah. There, I, how are we already more than halfway through the year? This is insane. Gosh. It feels like a personal affront to me that it is as late in the year as it is. It feels like it should be March. Serious. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice. Should we get to some stories? Let's do it. We haven't in a while, so I am very excited. Yeah, well, why don't you start then, Sky? Sweet. All right, so today I am talking about number 9533 Dorothy Jean Tate. Her sources are her inmate file from the Idaho State Archives, Ancestry.com records, newspaper.com records, the about page at Walla Walla Catholic Schools.com, history of the Potlatch Lumber Company from PotlatchDeltic.com, and then uh, just one quick Wikipedia page on Headquarters Idaho, and then I uh, went and looked at the sources they provided, which included the Lewiston Morning Tribune, the Spokesman Review, and the Moscow Pullman Daily News. So Dorothy Jean Tate was born Dorothy Jean Johnson near Dayton, Washington on May 27, 1920. Interestingly, she used the name Dorothy Ray for most of her life because she thought that Ray was her real middle name. She didn't learn that her middle name was actually Jean until 1956. She was 36 years old when she saw her birth certificate for the first time. Wow. Interesting. I know. Isn't that interesting? 
she was the youngest of ten kids. She had four older sisters, Etta, Amy, Gladys, and Nina, and five older brothers, Clinton, Virgil, Asa, Merle, and Eugene. Oh, the baby of the family. Especially yes, of ten. Yes, the baby wow. and her oldest sibling was almost 21 years older than her. Wow. Wow. So she's the baby baby. Her parents were Cone Johnson and Alice Beeman Johnson. Sadly, according to Dorothy, her mother died in the process of giving birth to her, and her father died just four years later. Oh, my gosh. According to all records, this is very much not true. Alice lived until 1945, and Cone lived until 1947. So this story is just one of the many exaggerations, or we could also call them lies, that Dorothy told throughout her life. Yeah, she had me so, going there. <laughs> I know, I know. There's several times where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so sad. And then I like read the next thing down in my notes and I'm like, oh, it's not true. So what I will say is there is plenty of information about her life that we can only take her word for. There are only certain facts verified by public records that we can say for sure are lies or half-truths or exaggerations, whatever we want to call them. I will always try to make a notation as to what information is according to her, and to an extent, this does have to be believed, even if she's exaggerating, because we don't have anything to verify that this information is true right now. Though, of course, we would absolutely, if someone has more information about her or her family, obviously we would absolutely love to hear it. So just kind of a caveat there to say, at some point, we have to kind of believe her, but there are some things we know for sure she did not tell the truth about. She describes her childhood as disrupted and hectic, and again, this information is according to her. She says she was sent to Catholic boarding school in Walla Walla, Washington. She then says she dropped out of school and got married at the age of 13. Later, though, she even contradicted herself and said that she left school at the age of 12 and lived with an older brother on his ranch. And I think, based on the research I did, this brother was either Clinton or Virgil, but we don't have any way of verifying either one of those things. She said that she'd been treated well at school, but she got poor grades and said that it was, quote, still an institution, end quote. And she says she got poor grades, she thinks, because she had a visual defect. She couldn't see very well, and so she couldn't see the whiteboard and thus, you know, had difficulty with her schoolwork. She even said that her teachers tried to contact her parents to tell them to get her glasses, but her parents never got them for her. One thing that we do know for sure is she did not marry at 13 years old, thankfully. So according to the social history in her inmate file, her father, Cone, was a farmer and raised cattle on his own ranch in Dayton. Her mother, Alice, was, quote, apparently quite a submissive type of woman inasmuch as she took orders and carried them out without question, end quote, and Cone was quite domineering over her. It seems like he saw himself as the head of the house and didn't consult Alice in financial matters or anything regarding the ranch. For her part, Alice never made Dorothy feel very loved, allegedly saying that Dorothy was just a nuisance around the house. Dorothy said that neither of her parents, quote, took any time for her, and she constantly had the feeling she was an unwanted person around the house, end quote. She said she wasn't kept in adequate clothes and got made fun of a lot by other kids in school. And she stated that as a punishment, Cone would whip her with a horsewhip to the point that it drew blood. She said she was envious of her closest brother, Eugene, because it seemed that he never got punished in the same way that she was, and that her parents seemed to show favoritism towards him. Ultimately, she, quote, stated her greatest desire while living with her parents was to break away from them, end quote. 
So she did get married on June 4th, 1938 in Yakima, Washington to a man named Benjamin Tate. And Benjamin was a logger, about 17 years her senior, and the couple moved to Lewiston for several years. Interestingly, she herself claimed that she was 13 years old at the time of her marriage, but according to the records that we found, she would have been 18, which is much more of an acceptable age to get married. And so I don't know why she kept trying to claim she was five years younger than she really was. Their first son, Ben Jr., was born on May 29, 1939, and over the next 15 years, they had seven more kids. Billy, Shirley, Donald, Sharon, Terry, Linda, and Stephen. Sadly, Donald died at just four months old in December 1942 from pneumonia. According to Dorothy, she and Benjamin didn't really have that much in common because he was so much older than her. And in late 1949, the couple separated before they divorced in March 1950. She claims that a woman was involved, but we obviously can't say that for sure. Another report stated that after the first six of her children were born, Ben began going out in the evenings and refused to help her raise the children. And so she basically was one woman raising six kids between the ages of one and 11. And even if he wasn't going out in the evenings and refusing to help, one woman raising six kids under the age of 12 is unbelievably hard. And so, understandably, she became depressed, probably frustrated, and became, quote, more careless and slovenly in her personal habits and household responsibilities and less attentive to her children, end quote. And I think also because of this, she stated upon her intake she didn't have any hobbies of her own because every ounce of energy and free time she had went toward caring for the children. She then said that five months after her divorce, on August 30th, 1950, she married Hazen Hertzer, who was in the Air Force, in Lewiston. This marriage seemed better. She said, quote, they got along quite well during the time they were married and lived together, end quote. Unfortunately, Hazen died in Korea in March 1953. But that was a little exaggerated. Dorothy and Hazen married, according to records, on August 31st, 1951. Hazen had served in the Army during World War II. He had enlisted in March 1941 prior to the U.S. involvement. And I, I couldn't find any record, but I don't think he served in Korea, and he certainly didn't die in Korea. He died in Walla Walla on November 20th, 1988. So my best guess then is that they divorced, but I couldn't find any records to confirm this. She then said she remarried Ben Tate in July 1953, but they, quote, just couldn't make a go of it, end quote, and divorced again in February. And if the dates I found for her last two children are correct, they were born during or maybe even after their second marriage, but I can't say for sure. Even this second divorce wasn't necessarily acrimonious. She said he was mean to her and he frequently went out with other women, but she also admitted that he was a good man with a good job, a good reputation, and he was a good provider for the family. These dates that she gives may be wrong, because in March 1954, the couple, along with Ben's brother Arthur and Arthur's wife Opal, were arrested in Dayton, quote, charged with stealing wool belonging to Dick Jackson, Starbuck farmer, end quote, and selling it to a pawn shop. Starbuck is in South Washington, but it is not related to the Seattle-based coffee chain. It's actually named after a character in Moby Dick. Uh, so hmm. lest we make that connection. Um, but I definitely was like, is this why it's called Starbucks? Yeah, but it's not. I was I wondering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the four pleaded guilty to grand larceny and each received a 15-year sentence at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. 15 years for stealing wool? For stealing wool, yeah. Did it say how much? Uh, yeah. It's $150 worth of wool. 
So it would pretty, pretty high quality, even if there's not a huge quantity. High quality and probably a lot of it, because it's probably like $1,500 to $2,000 worth of wool, if my mental math is correct, which don't, don't quote me on it because I'm a historian and I don't do numbers. So yeah, so basically they each received a 15-year sentence, but the judge granted that their sentences be suspended on the condition that they repay him the $150 in wool they stole. The compromise then from that point was that the men had to serve 30 days in the county jail while the women were allowed, quote, to remain free to raise the money due Jackson, end quote, and they were given two years probation instead. When she was asked about this arrest upon her intake, she was evasive about it. She claimed she had been found not guilty and released, and she said she wasn't even there when it happened, that she had gone to a dance with a niece, but was influenced by the other three to say that she was there. So, again, like a lot of what Dorothy says, you kind of have to take what she says with a grain of salt, but to some extent, you have to believe her because this is the only, only information we have on it. So in August 1954, she asked to be able to move to Idaho while she was on probation, which she was allowed to do, probably because her family lived there, and they lived in Headquarters, Idaho. Do you guys know anything about Headquarters, Idaho? No. So, Headquarters is an unincorporated community in northern Idaho in Clearwater County, about 12 miles north of Pierce, and roughly 45 minutes west of Orofino. Okay. Um, Hmm. It was originally the northeastern terminus of the Camas Prairie Railroad, and was originally established in 1906 as a fire protection station for the Potlatch Lumber Company, which was a lumber company founded along the banks of the Palouse River in north-central Idaho in 1903. And this made headquarters a company town. So, for those of you who don't know, company towns are very interesting. I think they're such a, a fun little niche in American history. They were very, very common in big manufacturing areas at the turn of the 20th century. And so they were towns where almost everything, including the houses that the workers lived in and the stores they shopped at, were owned by the company. It depended on the company town, but often you were paid in currency that was only good in the town. There were a lot of different reasons for it, but one of the reasons was especially if the bosses tended to be a little more conservative or, like, wanted to make sure their workers weren't doing, like, immoral things. So they didn't pay them in real money so that they couldn't go spend real money and spend it in the ways that the bosses deemed irresponsible, things like that. Makes me think of Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. The family in the book lives in a company town for a little bit. Nice. And they talk yeah. a lot about how you just become more and more poor because you're always owing the company more money. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty exploitative, honestly. So that's what headquarters started at. But by 1926, headquarters became, quote, a bustling center of warehouses, boarding, and bunkhouses, end quote. And it had about 20 residential houses for company employees and their families. Understandably, they never had a huge population in headquarters. 400 was the highest population at one point. In 1931, because of financial challenges of the Great Depression, the Potlatch Company merged with two other local lumber companies, the Rutledge Lumber Company and the Clearwater Timber Company, to create Potlatch Forests, Inc., also known as PFI. So PFI would continue to support headquarters as a company town, and Dorothy's husband, Benjamin, was a logger for Potlatch. In 1973, with growing international business, they actually supplied paperboard for packaging in Japan, and the the company was also expanding their domestic business. PFI became Potlatch Corporation. 
During the 1980s, high residential interest rates caused several boom and bust cycles from which the forest industry suffered, and they had to close several Idaho mills and sites, and headquarters was unfortunately one of those sites where jobs were deeply affected. According to a Spokesman Review article by Richard Ripley from August 25, 1985, when Potlatch announced they'd be closing a nearby mill, headquarters was home to 168 hourly workers, and they laid off all but 65 of them. These layoffs also affected 400 contract loggers and the 38 salaried employees who lived in headquarters. By 1992, when the Spokesman Review wrote another article about headquarters, there were just 29 people living in the town, and within months, three families were going to move from the area. So, Potlatch Corporation has been a big employer in the northern part of the state of Idaho, with Lewiston being a major production center. They have since merged and consolidated with several other lumber and timber companies, adding facilities in Arkansas, Minnesota, Oregon, and Nevada. And in 2018, they merged with Arkansas-based Deltic Timber, and the company is now known as Potlatch Deltic Corporation. So, quick brief history, both about Potlatch, which is an Idaho-based company, and headquarters. Um, Just kind of interesting little history there. So, back to Dorothy. Even though she wanted to be in Idaho with her family, she apparently did not do a good enough job of taking care of her family, as it was reported that she had been, quote, hanging around, end quote, beer taverns and neglecting her children while she did it. She was allegedly arrested and charged with willful neglect of children, but there was no deposition for the charge, and she never brought it up when she was asked if she'd had any sort of um, criminal past, so nothing seemed to have come of it, but this does also seem to kind of match with what we know about how hard she's finding raising her family on her own and how she seems to feel a little isolated uh, within her family. Around November 1954, she began seeing and living with a man named Albert Blankenship in Lewiston, and she referred to him as her common-law husband. Unlike Benjamin, Albert was five years younger than Dorothy, and Albert had a close working relationship with his brother D.E., who owned a sheep ranch in Asseton, Washington. Apparently, Albert had quote-unquote tax difficulty, with no specification of what that means, and he didn't have a bank account of his own, so anytime he needed money, he used money from his brother's account. Dorothy said that Albert's tax difficulty was also the reason that the two had not been legally married yet, but they were planning to once the tax issues had been resolved. She was briefly arrested in March 1955 for disturbing the peace, but her $25 bond was forfeited, meaning she failed to appear in court to answer for this charge, and I could not find uh, any resolution to this charge. Then, in May 1956, she forged a check for $25 made payable to C.C. Anderson and Company Store, signed with the name D.E. Blankenship, and was arrested on May 25, 1956. So here are the details of this forgery. When Albert refused to give Dorothy any money after she'd spent it all of her allowance, she stole a check from his checkbook, signed it with the name D.E. Blankenship because apparently Albert did this all the time to, again, get around these quote-unquote tax difficulties, and she cashed this check at the C.C. Anderson store in Lewiston on May 7th. She gave some contradicting details as to why she forged this check, but the underlying reason was that she needed to get from Lewiston to headquarters for her children. One story she stated said that she needed money to go see her oldest son's high school graduation. The other 
which is the story that this larger investigation uncovered, was that her ex-husband, Ben, called her and told her he couldn't care for their two youngest children anymore, and she needed to come and get them because his work would make it difficult to care for them for a couple weeks. Now, it is possible that both stories are true, but the official investigation doesn't mention anything about a graduation, um, so it seems more likely that if both are true, that the, the main reason was to go pick up her children from her ex. So after she forged the check, Albert's mother drove her to the store to cash it, after which she got on the next bus to headquarters. After picking the children up, she took them back to Lewiston, where they spent a couple weeks. And on May 24th, she took the children back to Ben and headquarters and stayed with the family overnight. She was arrested the next day when she returned to Lewiston and held in the Nez Perce County Jail awaiting trial. Now, understandably, and as we can see in this example, the home that Ben and Dorothy had made for their children was not the most stable, and her oldest sons, now 16 and 17, began getting in trouble with the law. And this is from the Spokesman Review on July 4th, 1956. Quote, Two brothers are sharing a cell adjoining their mothers in the Nez Perce County Jail. The brothers are two of four boys picked up by Lewiston police and sheriff's officers on a charge of burglary. Included in the loot was a quantity of beer. End quote. Both sons, Ben Jr. and Billy, were parolees from the State Industrial School in St. Anthony at the time of the burglary. According to this newspaper article, they were going to be tried in juvenile court, but I couldn't find a resolution to this case, probably because the offenders were minors, and I think the case probably wouldn't have even made it into the newspaper had it not been for this novelty of sort of the mother-sons both in jail kind of situation. So eventually, though, and excitingly and happily, Ben, both Ben Jr. and Billy end up turning their lives around. In 1958, Ben Jr. was inducted into the Army, and he served in Vietnam, and Billy became a prominent businessman in northern Idaho slash eastern Washington. So they, they turn around, they figure things out, and we love to see it. Dorothy, meanwhile, appeared in court just six days after her sons were arrested on July 9th, and she pleaded guilty to forgery. Two months later, on September 10th, 1956, she was placed on three years probation, and the condition of her probation was that she had to care for her minor children during her probation period. And though this isn't explicitly stated, I think part of caring for her minor children meant either returning to the home she had previously shared with Ben Tate in headquarters, or at least make her home nearby. She did return to Ben's home, but according to her, Ben began beating her, and she violated probation by leaving her home and headquarters and checking into a hotel in Lewiston. Ben's side was that he'd kicked her out of the house because, quote, he had found she had been doing a lousy job of housekeeping at headquarters and had no control over the children, end quote. In October 1956, the Washington State Board of Prison Terms and Paroles wrote Idaho authorities letting them know that they were terminating her probation from the 1954 grand larceny charge. And it says, quote, Unlike an order dismissing probation, the order terminating does not restore Mrs. Tate's civil rights, nor does it change her plea to guilty or not guilty. She is still considered a criminal offender in our state and will not be able to legally vote or hold public office. She will have no further obligation to our state, but will appear in our records as unsuccessfully completing her probation, end quote. So all reports, newspapers and otherwise, state that she was rearrested and had her Idaho probation revoked for failing to abide by the terms of her probation, which apparently also included charging $108.70 to Albert Blankenship at the Lee Morris store in Clarkston, Washington, without permission, and also checking into a hotel in Lewiston as Mrs. Albert Blankenship, even though they weren't married, and then also leaving without paying the hotel bill. So there were kind of a lot of things going on as, and re lots of reasons why her probation was revoked. 
And so because it was revoked and she'd done all these things, as we see so many times before, because of this, she was given an indeterminate term of 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 22nd, 1956. And she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary four days later on November 26, 1956. On her intake form, her age is listed as 31, height 65 and one half inches, weight 159 pounds, eyes brown, hair brown, complexion medium, no military record, occupation housewife, marital status listed as divorce, children seven, education quit in seventh grade. Her battalion showed several scars on her arms, her knees, and an operation scar on her stomach, varicose veins on her legs, and it makes a notation that her teeth were bad. She also said she still suffered from that same visual defect, um, that she needed glasses for close work. She was one of 11 inmates in the women's ward when she entered, including elderly Lennon, who we covered in episode 78, and the first incarcerations of serial offenders Virginia Pugmire from episode 27, Edna Mae Hester from episode 44, and Barbara Ann Singleton from episode 15. And much like we so often see for the women, she had a pretty average stay. She mopped floors, she took out the garbage, she washed dishes, she helped in the kitchen, etc., etc. Toward the end of her incarceration, the matron wrote, quote, I would like to see her release soon. Dorothy is okay, end quote. The social history also mentions that her oldest daughter, Shirley, corresponded and visited with her, but it doesn't seem that any of her children did as well. And another person who didn't want to visit her while she was incarcerated was her supposed common-law husband, Albert. Toward the end of her incarceration, as they were preparing her parole plan, a parole agent stopped by his house to ask him about Dorothy, but he said he didn't want to slash didn't have much to say about her. She explained this away as him just being bashful about going and talking to the parole agent. He wrote her occasionally, usually about once a month, but she wrote him every single week. So it kind of is one of those situations where it seems like she's way more into him than he is into her. But according to authorities, and, and actually to kind of back this up, according to authorities, he himself described her as a friend. Wow. <laughs> so he kind of friend-zoned his own common-law wife. Wow. That's tough. And is he raising the seven children or? No. So this is Albert. And so I don't know if Benjamin has the kids. It kind of made it seem like at least the younger kids, I think by now the older kids are, mm. some of them are out on their own. Um, and, and so I think as far as I can tell, that is where the kids lived is with Ben. Um, Cause Albert doesn't, he doesn't really seem heavily involved even in her life much less in her kids lives how um, long was her sentence it was it was a 14 year indeterminate sentence so you know no more than 14 years yeah, so for this forgery charge like no real legal obligation to stay with her right and i bet she, he's the only lifeline that she feels that she has oh man that's that's pretty rough. Ouch. Yeah, I was going to say, can you imagine being like, oh my gosh, I'm, I have this common law person that I, I really love. And then you go into prison and they're just like, I don't know her. They just become that Mariah Carey gift that's just like, I don't know her. <laughs> I'm not aware of this gift, but I could Okay, have... <laughs> well, you should, you should, it's just Mariah Carey and all her fabulousness saying that. It's very funny. But, but basically that's, that's what he's saying. It's just like, I, I mean, she's a friend. I, I, I like her well enough. Meanwhile, she's like, he's just, he just doesn't want to talk to, he's just bashful. He doesn't want to talk to the parole officer. Yeah. Prison authorities interviewed Dorothy in February 1957 to ask her about what she thought might be a good parole plan. 
She thought maybe it would be good to go stay with her mother-in-law, Anna, who is Albert's mother, so kind of her mother-in-law, because Anna apparently had shown real interest and affection for Dorothy. And Dorothy simultaneously wondered aloud if authorities would make her go and live with Ben Tate again, but she was assured she would not have to. The August Board of Correction granted Dorothy a parole, effective October 15th, 1957, subject likely to good behavior. And so now that she's been given this parole date, they have to figure out a good parole plan. So in September 1957, a parole officer went to Asseton, Washington, to talk to Anna Blankenship about Dorothy coming to live with her. And this is what the report says, quote, Mrs. Anna Blankenship stated she had no knowledge of Dorothy Tate's plan to make her home with her on parole. She stated she did not have the facilities for an extra person in her home, nor would her daughters allow her to let Dorothy to come to her home, even if Mrs. Blankenship so desired. She stated she did not want Dorothy Tate in her home and would not consider her temporarily residing with her, end quote. Now, that kind of makes it seem like, again, Anna Blankenship is just like, I don't know her. But I do think part of it is she probably didn't have that big of a home, and she did have her daughter and her granddaughter living with her, so there probably legitimately wasn't room for Dorothy. And Anna also said she had quote-unquote heard that her son had planned to be married, but hadn't heard who he wanted to marry. She said she assumed it was Dorothy because Dorothy was the only girl Albert ever quote-unquote went with. Um, which is a is an old-fashioned way of saying basically dating. So it's kind of a funny, like, when I first read that, I was like, oh, she's like, I do not want her to come. But it seems more practical than, like, out of spite or out of malice. So around the same time, Dorothy had heard that Ben had been arrested for drunkenness and child neglect in Orfino and was concerned for her children's welfare. So a parole agent went out to headquarters to talk to him and ask his thoughts on him taking Dorothy during parole. The children ended up being cared for at a neighbor's house during his arrest, so all was well in that regard. And by the time he'd gotten, you know, by the time the parole officer was talking to him, he had returned home and the children were in his care. He said he had no objection to Dorothy returning, but said it would be more of a housekeeper-employee relationship than a husband-and-wife relationship, but he would happily provide her necessities in the home if she came back. So it's kind of, uh, like, her romantic life is not working out well for her. At least it isn't antagonistic between Dorothy and Ben. It's more just like, listen, we've tried this twice. It's not working, but she's welcome to come back and, like, help me take care of my house and my kids. Which, if, according to her, her if we can believe her, which, again, mm, grain of salt, is kind of how he was treating her anyway. If he was going off to work and going out to see other people, again, I'm not saying that that is true. That is what she said. Finally, an agent managed to get a hold of Albert Blankenship and asked his thoughts on accepting Dorothy on parole. At this time, he was living about 12 miles outside of Asseton, Washington, working as a sheep herder. He told the agent that he planned to meet Dorothy in Lewiston upon her release from the penitentiary and marry her that very day. He even stated he was willing to take in Dorothy's two youngest children into his home and, quote, provide a home for them, end quote. And it was anticipated that Dorothy wouldn't take any outside employment and instead work as the traditional wife, as the housekeeper, and as, as the mother and wife, and that that's kind of what her job would be. Ultimately, the agent said this was a, quote, very weak parole plan due to her past history with the Blankenship family. However, this seems to be a mutual plan and the best that could be worked out with Dorothy's background, end quote. So this became her parole plan, and she was indeed released on October 15th, 1957, and immediately returned to Lewiston, and she had served 10 months 
and 19 days of a maximum 14 year sentence. And again, just a reminder for either those who haven't um, listened before or those who haven't listened in a while, because it, again, it has been a long time since we recorded, 14 years probably seems really harsh for forgery, but that was every forger got 14 years and very, very, very few of them served more than like two or three years, if that. So that's why it seems a little crazy that she was out, let out so soon, but that's just the standard sentence. And a, a nice little light moment is just as Albert said he intended to do, he and Dorothy married two days after her release on October 17th, 1957. Huh. Wow. Yeah, isn't that interesting that maybe he was just bashful. Maybe he was kind of shy about uh, taking her into the family. I don't know. I'm so curious about that. So the couple lived in Aceton, where all of Albert's family was from. I'm not sure if Albert had already worked in the industry, in the lumber industry or not, but he actually ended up working for Potlatch Forests, where Ben actually worked. I don't know if they associated with each other much, or maybe they were at two different camps, or I don't know anything about lumber, so I'm not going to even hazard a guess as to what work sites were called. But that's, that's kind of interesting. The marriage between Albert and Dorothy seemed to be good, at, at least for a while. A report from even prior to her incarceration at the Idaho State Penitentiary said that her relationship with Albert was, quote, a sustained, devoted one where the subject was responding to a feeling of being loved and taken care of, end quote. A report from parole officer Mary Lou Schooler on December 3rd, 1958, just over a year after her release, stated, quote, she and her husband and two children are doing well financially with Mr. Blankenship's more than average income, end quote. Schooler even stated that Dorothy, quote, has derived maximum benefits from her supervision. Therefore, it is recommended she be discharged from supervision, end quote. She was granted a final discharge from parole just less than two weeks later on December 16th, 1958. After her release, I lose track of her, but she never got in trouble with the law again, which is always what we want to see. At some point, she and Albert must have divorced. His obituary from 1993 doesn't list her as a survivor. However, she does keep his last name until she died, so presumably she never remarried. She passed away on April 13th, 2007, at the Clarkston Care Center in Clarkston, Washington, and she is buried in the Dayton Cemetery in Dayton, Washington, where she was born. And that is the story of our number 9533, Dorothy Jean Tate somebody being raised through the depression as the youngest mm-hmm. of, of potentially a struggling family mm-hmm. and for her to kind of like, I don't know, tell authorities that her parents were, were dead, you know, that mm-hmm. they're dead to her, that her ex-husband is dead to her, even though they were living, uh, like that, that those are a couple of red flags. That's kind of interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I can't figure out why she would, come up with the exaggerations or lies that she came up with like I don't know I mean I guess I totally see what you're saying though that she's doing it because she's so unhappy with how her parents how she felt her parents treated her that she just was like oh they're dead <laughs> or or like, she's trying to hide you know hide information from mm-hmm. these people that like true you know oh maybe they told her that she would never amount to anything and then like Mm. Don't try to reach them because they all died. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or gain sympathy. Yeah. 
or and or gain sympathy absolutely yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we see so many of these women with like who come from abusive marriages it's weird to see like a disinterested marriage or partnership where the spouse just like does not care yeah and i i do find that marriage to albert so interesting that she was like oh he's super into me, he's going to marry me, and then everyone outside of him, and even himself, is like, oh no, we're just friends. But then they talk to him a couple months later, and he's like, oh, I plan on marrying her as soon as she's back in town. And I find that so curious. Never know what's going on behind closed doors. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Relationships are complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, nice work, Sky. Yeah, thank you. That's, That's my story. And you realize there's, well, for example, the death penalty, which we have in various states now around, in fact, in this state here, or Washington, I should say, as a state up in Walla Walla, that they've spent millions of dollars on that fellow up there, Campbell, trying to avoid the death penalty. But look what he did. And that is what influences the public's opinion of prisons and the prisoner. If you violate I want a pound of flesh. I want something done. Because I don't violate. I live by the laws. You didn't. It's a a difficult decision to uh, try and make a judgment. And I fear that building, as I point out, several hundred institutions, boy, the money that's going into institutions, you can't avoid it. There's sure a lot of money going into the construction of prisons and the operation of prisons. Anthony, are you are you telling us a story today? I am telling a story today. Ah, oh, let's hear it. All right. So, 2023 marks 50 years since the closure of the old Idaho Penitentiary. The final residents of the institution were escorted by prison authorities, local police, and the National Guard to the current site on December 3, 1973. A year later, the site was turned over to our agency, the Idaho State Historical Society, who have continued to preserve the buildings, artifacts, and documents and promote the history of this site ever since. And so, of course, I felt it fitting to start the season with the visionary state director of corrections who oversaw the transfer to the new prison and ushered in a new form of criminal justice in Idaho. And that was Raymond May. So, my sources today, I use the digitized Idaho Daily Statesman, hosted on NewsBank by the Boise Main Library, Chronicling America Digitized Newspapers, hosted by the Library of Congress, Newspapers.com, which was a huge resource for national newspapers, Ancestry.com, History.com, this article titled, How a 1921 Baseball Radio Broadcast Marked the Dawn of Sportscasting, by Phil Sheridan, a Wikipedia article on the Midnight Sun game, Oral Histories with Raymond May by Chris Brady on May 19, 1994, Bill Sanders on July 3, 1992, Chet Chesterstonet on July 20, 1992, and Roy Groom on May 26, 1992. And these are all part of the Idaho State Historical Society collection located at the Idaho State Archives just down the street from the Old Pen. A Wikipedia article on the town of Larium, Michigan. An article from PrisonLegalNews.org titled Writer Programs in Idaho Offer Prisoners a Second Chance by Jason Hawkins from September 2019. 
a history of the McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary from the Washington Department of Corrections website. An article titled Pennsylvania Big House by Allie Matson on the Pennsylvania Center for the Book website. And finally, a Wikipedia article on the Federal Correctional Institute at Terminal Island. So you can kind of get an idea. This, this story traverses a wide span of institutions throughout the country. So Raymond W. May was born in Larium, Michigan on July 27, 1907. His father, Frederick, was born in Cornwall, England, and came to the United States in 1897. Frederick was chasing a fortune and moved to Larium, Michigan, the country's first major copper mining region. The name Larium actually comes from the ancient Greek mining town of the same name. Frederick wasn't the only international traveler to move to Larium. In the 1900 census, just under half of the town's population was described as foreign-born. Frederick met and married a local woman who was two years younger than him named Charity Ann, and they married and had their only son, Raymond May, in 1907. Now, around the age of five, the May family picked up and moved to Tacoma, Washington in 1912. In 1920, they were listed in the census living in Rosedale, Washington, where Ray was listed in 1921 as a graduate of the eighth grade. The family moved south about 20 minutes to University Place, where Frederick owned a commercial greenhouse and worked as a florist for the next 40 years. And I, I couldn't find which school, but he would have graduated in around 1925. I found a note that in April 1926, a party was held with the local University Place Orchestra performing for Raymond and two other recent graduates, uh, high school graduates, who were leaving for an eight-month road trip to New York City with the expectation to return to Washington around Christmas that year. Can you imagine your parents letting you do that? <laughs> <laughs> it was a different time in the 1920s, for sure. <laughs> Going to the big city. Right. I can't even imagine. So, Raymond, like most of the nation, watched the first golden age of baseball in the 1920s with the publication of sports pages and newspapers, construction of large baseball fields and stadiums, and the advent of radio broadcasts of baseball games. Hockey ball and left-hand hitters. All the Pittsburgh Pirates is up. Hit the first ball, pitch down, short. Foreman comes up with it. The ball is wide, McKay reaches over, drags the ball, and he is out. Garrick is getting a nice uh, round of applause for that catch over first base. That was a scorching ground ball, and Joe Cronin has to go to his left a little bit for it. Babe Ruth came to prominence at this time for his home run hitting skills, and it was a fantastic time for the sport, and Raymond joined in. In the 1920s, he actually played catcher with the Tacoma Rainiers baseball team. I couldn't find any details about his time on the team or any extra statistics, but uh, baseball was very important throughout his life. In the 1930s, during the Depression, Ray actually dropped out of college. He moved to Alaska in 1932 to become a gold miner, following the path of his father, who came to the United States from England to be a copper miner. And he actually worked for the Fairbanks Exploration Company in Alaska through four mining seasons, or so about four years. He continued playing baseball, again as catcher on the Fairbanks baseball team, and even played in the Midnight Sun Championship. And uh, do you know what that is? The Midnight Sun Championship? Have you ever heard of this? No. Well, this is a <laughs> baseball tournament that started in 1906 and actually continues today that's held every June 21st. And typically, the game starts at 10.30 p.m., 
and plays past midnight without any lights, no artificial lighting, because the sun doesn't set in Alaska at this time of year. The sun's up 24 hours of the day. So it's just this really fun baseball tournament they hold every year. I I'd never heard of it. It just sounds like such a fun time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really fun. I totally go to that. Yeah, same. So before Raymond left Washington in 1932, he actually took the Federal Bureau of Prisons Department of Justice exam. As an example, the Seattle Star newspaper published a story in November 26, 1936, titled, U.S. to Hold Job Exams. Quote, Want a job as a lithographic stone grinder and polisher? Uncle Sam is offering just such a job to somebody and will soon hold an examination to decide just who it will be, according to the Civil Service Commission. The position pays a salary of $1,200 a year. Examinations for two other jobs will also be held, one for junior custodial officer for the Bureau of Prisons Department of Justice at a salary of $1,860 a year, and the other for supervising inspector of clothing factories for $4,600 a year. End quote. All right. Any guesses on how much $1,860 a year uh, would be in today's money based on 1936 inflation? 50000 Oh, good guess. Sky, you got a guess? I'd say like 20000 25000 Oh, you know, actually $40,905. Ooh, like, actually, well done, Sam. That's a pretty, pretty livable wage. I was surprised. I was like, yeah. So Ray in 32 actually took this exam and then didn't hear anything. And he actually noted in an oral history that he didn't even think about it. He just like took it and then he went to Alaska it was not even in his mind. And then four years later, in the fall of 1936, around the time that this newspaper article is dropped in the, the Seattle Star, Ray gets a call from the Bureau of Prisons, and they had him on a wait list. And so they reach out to him that fall and uh, offered him a job as a junior officer. Any ideas of where he may have worked? Was it McNeil Island? Ooh, that's a good guess. Eventually, but actually, mm. Alcatraz, federal prison. Yes, so they offer him a job to be a, a, an officer down at Alcatraz. And while in Alaska, I was given a call, a final call, that if you're interested in your register, registration on the uh, Bureau of Prisons list, you'll have to report to Alcatraz within few many, so many days. So in... 1936, I have to recall the dates now, I reported to Alcatraz and I worked there for four years. He had a very short window to respond, about a month, to decide, do I pick up my life and move from Alaska and work in California, which he had never been to? And he has nothing holding him or tying him to uh, Alaska, so he picks up. He moves to San Francisco, California. His first day out of the mines and as a prison guard on The Rock, as the Alcatraz is fondly known, was December 15th, 1936. This first step propelled him into a lifelong career in criminal justice. The impact of his 30-plus years in corrections can still be seen today in systems and programs that he initiated on a federal level and later on a state level here in Idaho. Infamous gangster Al Capone, number 88 at Alcatraz, was serving his sentence there. 
He had arrived two years earlier when the first train car of federal prisoners arrived on the island on August 22, 1934. In 1936, Alvin Karpus, known as Creepy Karpus, arrived at the prison for his involvement in several violent crimes and kidnappings as a member of Fred Barker's gang, the Bloody Barkers. Karpus served at Alcatraz until the prison closed in the 1960s. Raymond and Alvin would actually eventually become friends, and I'll talk a little bit more and let Raymond talk more about this later. Also in 1936, former Idaho State Penitentiary prisoner William Daynard was finally caught after one year on the run for his involvement in one of the biggest kidnapping heists in U.S. history. His partner in crime, Harmon Whaley, who he had actually met while they were both incarcerated here serving time in prison at the old Idaho Penitentiary, his partner was marking his first year behind bars at Alcatraz for that same kidnapping. So stay tuned. Uh, later in the season to hear the story about Harmon and William. We'll dig deeper with a specialist on Alcatraz history later in the season, but to give a general overview, the island in the San Francisco Bay served as a military prison from 1850 until it was transferred to the Federal Bureau of Prisons in 1933, three years before Raymond began working at the institution. It was operational for 30 years and closed as a federal prison in 1963. While working as an officer at Alcatraz, Ray met and married Carol Mary Hutton. Like the old Idaho penitentiary, guards lived in housing near the prison. On Alcatraz, that meant actually living on the island. Ray and Carol had their first child, a daughter named Care Ann, on the island. Their apartment was an old army barracks converted into living quarters for guards and their families, and it was strictly blocked off from the rest of the prison. Ray lived and worked at Alcatraz for four years. In 1938, two years into his position, he was promoted to instructor. He held this position for two years and was instructed to move to another island prison, this time in Washington. So your first guest, McNeil Island Federal Prison. (laughs) And I've actually discussed this federal prison in previous episodes, and many residents at the Idaho State Penitentiary spent, spent time at McNeil Island, including Kenneth Hastings. As a quick review, though, it served as a federal prison from 1875 to 1976. In the 1930s, the federal farm camp was completed, and prisoners were growing their own food. In 1940, when Raymond was brought on, the entire island, measuring about seven square miles, was actually put under federal control. Previously, about half the island was the federal prison. The other half was owned by uh, civilians. Raymond and his family were officially transferred to McNeil Island on December 1st, 1940. So Merry Christmas. Here's your new job up north. Now, while working in his new position, the couple had their son, Douglas. And uh, Raymond worked his way through the ranks from custodial instructor to lieutenant. In 1944, a conspiracy was revealed by a prisoner who was cheated out of his share of money in a theft ring at the prison. Old lead wires at the prison were actually being melted down and provided to the Navy to help with the war effort. You know, World War II was going on. Three prisoners uh, and two staff members of the prison, including an engineer and a prison guard, snuck cans of melted down lead amongst paint cans and ferried the cans to a Tacoma junkyard. They sold the lead and all pocketed a share of the profits. Unfortunately, One prisoner did not receive what he thought was his fair share. He was locked in solitary for seven months by the guard involved to keep him quiet. But 
he broke the news and the two staff were fired. Ultimately, two prisoners and the engineer were found guilty of theft of government property and conspiracy to commit theft. The prison guard and one of the prisoners were both acquitted on the charges. During this trial, Raymond actually had to take the stand and talk about different contraband discovered and the investigation into the paint shop and the whole scheme. And at that time, he was actually listed in the newspaper as the guard captain. But mid-1940s, in 1946, a major riot erupted at Alcatraz and one of the most savage riots in the nation's history to this point. Raymond was actually sent to Alcatraz and designated as a captain to help quell the violence. The different different class of inmates, you didn't have as many incidents in those major penitentiaries then. But when you had one, it was big. I went down for the riot in Alcatraz in 1946. I took a crew down there. And that's, there was, there was uh, 13 in Letterman General Hospital various degrees of being shot up and there was two deaths and we had to bring in then warden johnston the marine corps from vallejo to bring that thing under control and i had gone down as captain at mcneil island with a contingent to aid in to bringing this thing under and the birdman of alcatraz was under eight or ten mattresses because of the shrapnel was coming in the side of the cell house from the the, the marines up at Vallejo. It was hectic. And that's when three of them were shot. I can't think of their names. Thompson, Sear, and whoever they were now. Their names, I, I purposely tried to forget them all. But that's the history of it. That's, as I say, in those days when you, when you had something, it was serious. Today, it's just with you every day, I guess. And we'll actually ask our Alcatraz specialist at a future Stool Pigeon Saturday episode to detail the riot in which two guards and three prisoners were killed. Fourteen officers were injured. Due to Raymond's background, both working as a guard at Alcatraz and his ability to lead, he was charged with bringing the United States Marines into strategic positions to gain control of the situation. (laughs) When the riot was finally quelled, Raymond returned to McNeil Island where he served another two years before he was transferred to another federal prison, this time in Pennsylvania. Raymond and his family transferred to the United States prison at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania on July 7, 1948 to work as a custodial supervisor. Custodial supervisor? Yeah, so... So he's like a a glorified janitor? You know, it sounds like that. It's actually basically a correctional officer. Um, Oh, gotcha. They had different names. Instead of just prison guard, Mm -hmm. uh, even when he started at Alcatraz, he was considered a custodial supervisor. Interesting use of language to describe that that sort of position. I I wonder, too, if, um, like, we... were, were people who did what we now call custodial work, was that still just being called, like, janitor? And, like, has that meaning changed? And is that maybe why they were... I don't know. I, I oh, Language is so interesting. It is. I'm such, an, I'm such an etymology nerd. Yeah. You know, I recently had a conversation. This is kind of an aside, but, like, the term to serve time. 
because, you know, you serve a mission, you know, you serve in the military and the army, but then to serve a prison sentence, why do we use that, that terminology when these other things are, are, for the most part, you, you choose to do these service? It was very interesting how close, especially in the English language, how close meanings can have and the way that in one context it means one thing but in one context it means another so that's i mean again this is as you said an, an etymology aside but i i do think that that is really interesting yeah i love thinking about it and i love mm-hmm. growing as a person as i learn different ways to to treat language and mm-hmm. that the effect that language can have on our perception of reality like Mm-hmm. Even using the word inmate, um, I've I've tried mm-hmm. to in alignment with the Idaho Department of Corrections to to move more towards the idea of a resident that this is somebody who is again using the word serve. They're serving their time. They're residing in a location to serve out court mandated punishment, mm-hmm. but you know it's just a temporary residence. You know, right? That's yeah. yeah. I love language. It's the best. <laughs> What a bunch of nerds. I know, right? (laughs) So Raymond at this point, he has come from Michigan to Washington, Washington to Alaska, Alaska down to Alcatraz, San Francisco, California, California up to McNeil Island back in Washington, and now he's shipped all the way to the East Coast for the first time to work at the Lewisburg Federal Prison. Now this is a prison. um, It is one of four that opened up in 1932. And it was designed as a maximum security institution intended to house the most violent and disruptive prisoners within the Federal Bureau of Prisons. It could hold around 1,500 men at a time. And it housed many 1930s gangsters like Al Capone and John Gotti. And uh, part of the prison was actually nicknamed Mafia Row because of (laughs) their incarceration there. Raymond Rose through the ranks again and was promoted to captain and later to prison correctional supervisor. Three years into his role, in July 1951, he was promoted to associate warden, quote, in charge of mass treatment, end quote, and the family moved into the associate warden's house. As the associate warden, he was in charge of the prison when the warden was traveling. He initiated a turkey farm, and he allowed celebrations of holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas with traditional dinners, free time in the gym and recreation areas, and even times to watch movies. With his first role as such a high rank, he began to enact progressive and pro-social programs within the penal institution. Ray and Carol had their son Bruce while living in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And hearkening back to his childhood, he actually managed the local Lewisburg Little League baseball team. And while researching Ray's time in Pennsylvania, I found that in 1951, he placed second in a marksmanship competition second to his record clerk at the prison named Thomas Deadeye Lawrence. Ray was a master marksman with a revolver and a rifle, and he regularly placed within the top three throughout his life and his career for these skills. Definitely a good skill to have as a prison warden. (laughs) So Ray actually transferred to and served as warden at Terminal Island Federal Correctional Institution in Los Angeles, California in June 1959. So he goes from Pennsylvania now back to California. This prison opened up in 1938 and was constructed near the Coast Guard base. 
It only served as a prison for about four years, but during the war, 1942, it's converted to the United States Navy to be used as a receiving station and barracks for court-martial prisoners. So individuals in the Army breaking laws, they turned it back into a military prison. And then in 1950, it returned to the Federal Bureau of Prisons and uh, was used as low to medium security institutions for federal prisoners. Now, to give you an idea, a young Charles Manson actually served two years at Terminal Island between 1956 and 1958 for car theft and check fraud. When Raymond took the reins in 1959, he quickly developed several programs that were extremely unique and progressive for the time and helped incarcerated men and women stay connected with the outside world and contribute to greater society. In February 1962, a fantastic write-up was published in the newspaper along with this great portrait of Raymond with the caption, Guard Towers Don't Solve Problems, outlined under his philosophy. It was titled, T.I. is City of 1,000 Troubled People. In the write-up, Raymond noted that the population of Terminal Island was made up with people who had their unique problems, some of which may never be solved. He waxed poetic on the language used, quote, the map makers call it a federal penitentiary, and the government calls it a federal correctional institute at Terminal Island. May stresses the point that the map makers are wrong and the government is right. This is a correctional institute, he said. The inmates, for the most part, are not hardened criminals, irrevocably lost to society. The average sentence here is less than five years, end quote. The nearly 1,000 men and women housed on the island served in a medium security institution, but lacked socialization and connection to society, which May felt were important to correctional systems. Raymond talks about a prisoner who was incarcerated so long that when he was released, he couldn't remember how to tie a tie. Another prisoner who ran errands with the guard in town was taken to a diner for lunch. Quote, the inmate studied the menu for a long time and started to shake. He couldn't break the habit of years of regimentation. He told the guard, You order for me. I can't. That's what prison does to a man. A prison that simply confines a man accomplishes little good, if any, May said. A prison that trains, treats, and rehabilitates a man is the only kind of prison worth the great amount of money it takes to operate one. When you build walls, he says, cut a man off from a society for several years, then suddenly throw open the gate and toss him out into the world that is now foreign to him, you have not protected society from him. The man is less prepared for society than before he went in. When a man is put in here under a long non-parole sentence, his face becomes a mask of hopelessness. He knows it doesn't matter what he does in prison or how well he adjusts. He's going to stay in for the full term. End quote. And Raymond continued by saying that he would like to develop a self-improvement group that would train, socialize, and connect residents with volunteers within the community. Now, after this write-up, he actually rolled out SIG, which is an acronym for the Self-Improvement Group. Very simple. I love this. The idea was developed between Raymond May and this Jesuit priest named Father Prang, a chaplain at McNeil Island. And the program allowed up to 150 incarcerated men to have panel discussions and hear about new things going on in society that uh, they would need to learn to navigate when they were released. And most importantly, meet with local businessmen and find out what employees were looking for. In an article published written by Prisoner 8444, uh, they don't put his name in there, 
It was published in September 1963 in several uh, nationwide newspapers, and it was titled, Businessmen Help Ex-Convicts Open the Invisible Cell Door. The prisoner described the SIG meetings occurring once every two months. Quote, Unlike the metal doors which can be made to swing open for each man in turn, the word convict can envelop him when he steps back into the unfamiliar sidewalks. It can hold him in a special kind of Bastille when he picks up the help-wanted section for the newspaper to indulge in the dimly remembered activity called looking for work, end quote. It's a really great write-up talking about, you know, what it's like to return to society. And technology has changed if you've been in for a long time. Customs have changed. People's dress and mannerisms have changed. Uh, This is something that we still see today in society. And the Idaho Department of Corrections right now is doing a lot of positive things in bringing in outside community organizations, even like enacting like virtual reality to practice like doing a self-checkout stand. Like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. you check out your own groceries now. And like, you got to learn how to do this. Oh, you have to navigate a grocery store. Like, let's get you used to what it's like to be in there and have all of these choices that you now have to make again. Yeah, it's really um, human-centered. Absolutely. Um, You know, because how many, I mean, part of the issue with recidivism rate is exactly what you're saying is that Especially, you know, even in the last five years, think about how far we've come in technology. Technology is changing at such a rapid rate these days that I like that's that is a really amazing program. But even back, you know, in the 50s and 60s and and 70s, technology is still advancing quite a bit. And to make sure that people are prepared for these things that they don't have experience in is really, yeah, like I said, kind of just human-centered and, and focused not on the criminal, but focused on the human. And um, I love that. Yeah. Dealing with the long-term effects of prison. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, institutionalization, just like preventing institutionalization and just like keeping people social and connected with the community. You still have to be locked in a cell. You're still being punished. But, you know, we're trying to look ahead and like really correct your behavior. And I, oh man, I, yeah, I've just, while I was digging into this, I was just impressed by all of these really progressive forward thinking programs that, that Raymond was developing. During the fall of 62, he actually established a program called the Chris Kringle Crew (laughs) in the male portion of the prison in which... Prisoners could actually volunteer their spare time to make dolls, bicycles, and other toys for the community. Yeah. Uh, Several years before this began, a program was developed in the women's portion of the prison in which uh, the women actually could sew fancy clothes for dolls. And on top of fixing wagons, bicycles, and other toys uh, collected by the Volunteers of America organization, prisoners also prepared a Christmas dinner underprivileged children in the community. After the second dinner that they had in 1962, Warden May noted that, quote, the event last year melted the hearts of even the hardest cynics in the prison's blue denim. After one little girl had applauded the group of inmate entertainers, collected a Christmas gift bought with inmate contributions, and eaten a dinner of turkey and all the trimmings, she looked at an inmate seated next to her and said, gee, you know I wish I lived here. 
I never felt so near to crying in my life, the inmate later told the warden, end quote. The idea of like allowing prisoners to do something that benefits the society and to volunteer their time to do that, it could have a really positive impact. Of course, there's always danger. There's always the issues that could go wrong, but he he definitely worked closely with the prison population to know who would be the good individuals to participate in a program like this. In early 1963, Raymond requested to have federal prisoners of both sexes to work in the business office at the prison during the day. Most expected this to fail, but the director of the Bureau of Prisons had faith in Raymond and approved it, and it became not only the first federal institution to house both sexes, but also the first to allow incarcerated men and women to work side-by-side in an office setting. In a newspaper article, Raymond was quoted as saying, quote, Everyone said it would never work. Now they wonder why someone didn't think of it before, end quote. He said that the office efficiency rose 20%, and there were no difficulties. The participants were men and women with backgrounds in accounting, bookkeeping, typing, and other office procedures that were serving time for embezzlement and mail fraud. So why don't we utilize these folks, let them keep up on these skills, and hopefully they can return to society and get back into a position and gain that trust and respect from their employers. Quote, some of the ladies are high-tide people. Unfortunate circumstance got them into their present situation, end quote. I thought that was kind of fun. And he wouldn't allow them to uh, give each other nicknames or anything. They always had to go by their real name, Mr. and Miss, in their first and last name. So it was a very professional setting, building trust and mutual respect. We've we've probably even said this on the podcast, but you also hear it on, in a lot of other podcasts and, and just people saying it, is, you know, if if people who commit crimes, especially things like embezzlement or they're chronically uh, committing, you know, check crimes or money crimes, you know, people always say like, man, if they only took those skills, they could actually get a really good job. And I love that instead of trying to like shut that down and be like, this is why you got in trouble in the first place. It's like, well, listen, you clearly have skills with money, even if you did it illegally. So let's take those and enhance them so that you can use them when you get out. I think it's a really compassionate way to go about it. Compassion. Like that is, I feel like everything Raymond did, it was all about compassion and empathy, which is so interesting for this time in American history. Yeah. (laughs) During his time at Terminal Island, he did have one issue that made national news when two young women, 19 and 20 years old, climbed a 50-foot smokestack and refused to come down for 37 and a half hours. Oh, the photo of these young women was published all around the country. It turned out that one of them wanted actually to return to the reformatory that she had escaped from in Utah a year earlier. And the other woman that was with her, she just was tagging along. Warden May, he didn't punish him for the stunt, and their names were never published due to their age. But he did fear that they hadn't eaten in a day, and he was really nervous about them climbing back down this 50 plus foot (laughs) smokestack safely if they were hungry but they made it out safe and he never punished them for it if that's the biggest controversy i could find during his time there good work ray in 1963 raymond and his family actually returned to mcneil island for the third time he served as warden in july 1964 He held this position until the summer of 1966 when the Federal Reformatory in 
Chillicothe, Ohio, turned over to the state of Ohio. And the wardens at Terminal Island, McNeil Island, and Marion, Illinois, were all shifted elsewhere. So Raymond was actually taken from McNeil and promoted to the special assistant to the director of the Bureau of Prisons, Merle Alexander. So he moved back to Washington, D.C., back to the East Coast with his family to fill this post. And when he received the notice, he told reporters, quote, I've always planned to retire at the completion of my 30 years. I am, however, looking forward to my new interim assignment, end quote. He told the reporters the exact day that he was retiring, December 15th, 1966, exactly 30 years to the day that he first stepped foot on Alcatraz. He had one goal before he retired, to return to the West Coast and develop work release and community furlough programs in major West Coast cities. After his retirement, he continued to volunteer and he worked with penal institutions to fulfill his dream of work release in halfway houses. But... He couldn't stay retired for long. That's why we're talking about him here in the podcast. He returned to Alaska in 1967, where he became the director of corrections in Juneau on December 17th that year. He helped build the new prison and establish new policies and procedures. After its completion in 1969, he got word that a prison was being constructed in Idaho. Although funds had already been established for the new Idaho institution, there wasn't much progress. It was kind of at a stagnation. He contacted Idaho authorities and showed some interest in helping move the project along. And soon after, he was offered the job as director of the Idaho Department of Corrections. To his surprise, when he arrived, he thought he was just going to be helping build the new current institution. After he stepped foot in Idaho, they were like, oh, also, uh, you're going to be warden of the old Idaho State Penitentiary simultaneously. So... But anyway, after about two years, the wife and I were living in Juneau. I then got notice that there was an opening in Idaho. And that was in, um, oh, about 69, early. I have to reconstruct that period. And I came down and met with uh, the then Board of Adult Corrections, or whatever it was called, uh, in the person of, well, there was three of them, uh, Bob Rice, Bill D, and... Uh, Tony Nagel, and went back, and shortly thereafter, I was asked to come down. Well, I came down. At that period in time, I must say that there was a, a sort of a, a limbo that existed. Now, here is the layout of the new institution, which had been planned evidently for some time. Money's appropriated, yet it was not moving. And one of the state officials at that time uh, said that we've simply got to get this thing moving out there. So I visited out there, and then I, uh, I, I, I remember it as just a small unit out there, unoccupied, off the, off the side. So my next duty, of course, was to uh, make contact with the uh, contractor and the state authorities who were responsible for the, the, the building. And having made those contacts and so forth, I began to realize that I was not only responsible for getting that back in operation, but a warden of the, the old Idaho State Penitentiary. A combination of things. <sighs> yes, he did not sign up for it, but here he is, and he accepted it. And uh, <laughs> when he arrived at the old pen, he described the buildings as neat and clean for the most part. Siberia wasn't in use during this time, at least as far as he knew. 
and the prison was being run in the typical fashion he described as rigid, but it had to be. He struggled as he navigated state politics, the construction of the new prison site, and running the old pen simultaneously. Quote, I would not want to go through that transition again, end quote. Fortunately, he was treated well by both Governor Samuelson and then later Cecil Andrus, who took role of governor while he was uh, warden here. As warden and director, his first order of business was actually implementing new programs at the old pen to help facilitate the transfer to the new site. He brought in a retired former colleague to help him develop a new count system to help track all of the residents. He brought in an auditor to help advise him if any industries that prisoners could be involved in to help the prison financially. He had a new locking system installed, but learned that the contract was for a company called Southern Steel, not uh, Stewart, which he had always traditionally worked with in the federal prisons. He sent a staff member to the manufacturer in St. Louis to learn how to work on these new locking mechanisms, which would be more common at the new institution. He was aware of the uncertain atmosphere, as he described it, at the prison due to the programs he was putting into place, the construction of the new prison, and the lack of classification systems at the old pen that he was trying to organize and raise to a standard he was familiar with in the federal prisons. He instituted a new admission orientation system that was more than the Bertillon fingerprints mugshot that and general family medical education work background forms that residents prior would have been initiated under. He included a whole batter of psychological, educational, and social tests to determine each resident's range of custody, maximum, medium, or minimum. Ray felt that the old pen didn't offer in the way of education or training, like anything worthwhile. Industry work like making license plates and machinery maintenance inside the prison was the main focus, but there weren't any real systems in place to progress or to actually track the progress of individual prisoners. He felt that it was important to speak with each incoming resident into the institution. As associate warden at all the prisons he had worked at prior to, he made sure to personally interview incoming prisoners for his own personal perspective and understanding. He made it a point as warden of the old Idaho Penitentiary to speak with the prisoners in the orientation unit. He understood the need to have a finger on the pulse of what was going on within the prison walls. He developed the Inmate Advisory Council, a program that Warden Clapp and other wardens prior to had attempted, but always ended up disbanding. He thought it was important to hear the complaints and demands made by residents. We had the philosophy of see and be seen. I mean, you had to get out in that yard and talk to the people. And uh, I initiated an inmate advisory council because we had them on McNeil Island. You get a lot of flack coming out of these from the standpoint, we want this, we want that, we like this, that. But you're getting a reaction again from what we knew as the inmate council. You didn't follow what they were requesting. But you get that, that funnel of... Uh, a feeling for the, the general uh, population. And that worked out, uh, in my judgment, uh, pretty well. In 1970, marking the 100-year anniversary of the laying of the Territorial Prison's cornerstone, which contained a time capsule, Raymond is pictured with Joe Munch and several residents extracting the time capsule. He noted how incredible it was to see the transition from the territorial days to that moment most likely pondering the importance of the new prison site and the closure of the old pen in the near future. 
road work camps were established and utilized throughout the prison's history, but they weren't in use when Raymond came, and so he found it essential for rehabilitation. So he actually uh, sent minimum security prisoners to northern Idaho to build a highway. So they lived in a work camp under tight supervision, and he felt that keeping these men out of the prison environment was essential to prevent them from being institutionalized and pressured into following a path of crime. Of course, under Raymond May, the two most destructive riots of the old pen occurred. <laughs> Nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy three. And you can hear more about those in episode thirty seven and thirty eight. But Raymond felt that the riots were partially caused by this uncertain atmosphere at the institution and the unease by the prison population. Their construction is going on, they don't know what the new prison's gonna look like, how they're gonna be treated at the new prison. He's trying to enact all these new programs. You know, part of them are living at the new site. The other half are living here at the old site. There's just a lot going on, and uh, it causes a lot of a lot of anxiety, which can definitely erupt and build up, especially on a hot August day in 1971, when a couple stabbings occur, and fire starts. It's yeah, definitely check out those episodes if you haven't already. Now, during that riot in 1973, Ray got into an argument with the sheriff of Ada County who wanted to take over the response. And Ray told him, get out of here, because he didn't want to turn over his responsibility to somebody else. I was responsible for the custody of that individual in keeping with the, the commitment that came to our attention from the court system. And I had to maintain the custody of this individual throughout. And I wasn't about to turn it over to somebody else because of the background that I had of 30 years where I was held accountable for custody. And he uh, almost insisted upon uh, taking charge now of this so-called riot and the fire and so forth. And I, I had to assert myself. I said, this is my job, my responsibility. I'm going to ask you to please get out of here. Let me take care of it. And I was down in the yard with the inmates as they were running around, see. And where was Knight? Well, he was standing up. I don't know what's his name, Mike? I, I, I thought it was Paul Bright, but I may not be right. I thought it was nice. You mean right? Anyway, uh, he was out with, a, I believe, a, a firearm on a, overlooking the yard. We'll take care of this now, and so forth. I know you won't. I'm down here with him. I'll take care of it in here. <laughs> the media took care took charge of that. There was cartoons the next day or two with uh, the sheriff riding his horse with a broken staff of some kind. <laughs> But in any event, uh, the staff itself, the custodial force, brought it under control. At that same time, in 73, <coughs> a very enterprising reporter for the local newspaper, seeing this situation, it was a night, he must have got a raincoat or a hat off of the fire department that was parked right by there with the hoses going over the wall. Climbed up as a fireman would and was inside interviewing inmates where we caught him. What was his name? I can't tell you. He was a young fellow working for the uh, newspaper here. But uh, we picked him up. Somebody did in there that recognized him. But he was getting stories. After the 73 riot, he appealed to the National Guard for help setting up the new mess hall on Outlaw Field and Two Yard to feed the prisoners while the dining hall was being repaired. And ultimately, they decided not to repair it, as any visitor who comes to the site today can see. 
Now, after the move on December 3rd, 1973, Ray's first project was the Admission Orientation Unit, overseen by the Classification Group. Ray worked with the local court system to adopt a 120-day jurisdiction. This is called retained jurisdiction and is still in use today and often called the Rider System. The Idaho Department of Corrections website describes the Rider System as men and women who are, quote, incarcerated in an IDOC facility but are under the judge's jurisdiction and they receive treatment and programming. Sentencing judges can place a resident on probation upon successful completion of the Rider or they can relinquish jurisdiction and sentence them to prison based on their behavior and progress during the retained jurisdiction period, end quote. So typically, writers can range in time, but are typically six to nine months today. Raymond developed this program in the 70s, and the original classification testing system, which provided Idaho courts a clear picture of every individual facing long sentences in prison, and the best way to treat, guide, and ultimately correct their behavior for their re-entry into society. It was a second chance, and today, about one in six Idaho prisoners are actually selected for writer programs, typically for nonviolent and drug-related crimes. If they complete the mandated time, they are released on parole for the remainder of their sentence instead of spending years in prison, allowing them to quickly reintegrate into society and not suffer institutionalization. Although writer systems achieve about a 90% success rate, meaning residents complete their programming and don't break rules, the recidivism rate for the writer program is about 40%. This means that those that only spend about six months in the writer program complete it, return to their homes on parole, and uh, four in 10 will commit a crime again and re-enter the prison system, either as a writer or being sentenced. Uh, despite that number though, Nearly 60% of people who return to society saves the state thousands and thousands of dollars. So, I mean, ultimately, it saves us as taxpayers a lot of money to have this writer system. Ray noted that 70% of Idaho's prison population was made up of repeat offenders, and he felt the problem stemmed from the placement of certain types of criminals within the harsh atmosphere of the prison system, as we've already kind of discussed at at federal prisons. If many of these men and women had been placed in different punishment systems like halfway houses or work camp environments instead of prison, they may have had a better chance of reforming. The prison experience made many men and women in for low-level crimes unsuitable for rehabilitation in a halfway house. The judge would retain custody of the individual for a period of time and after our process through the orientation or the admission procedure with a pretty good workup, as best we could do it, in addition to what had already been done, we would recommend back to the court system that this individual would be lost to put into a penitentiary atmosphere. That he has, or she, incidentally the women were going to Nevada at that time, why uh, offered some potential for uh, non-criminal existence. Now, frankly, <laughs> If I remember correctly, the judges seized upon that to get additional study to help them out in their decision-making. Now, whether that exists now or still exists, I don't know. But I think it was a good idea to somehow, because my, I look back over the years, including Alcatraz and the penitentiaries, visitations to the maximum institutions at Leavenworth and Atlanta and on the way down, 
once you get an individual in the atmosphere of a prison, the, the, it seems to grasp them. And at that time, the figure we were given in our study, 70% of those that came out of the institution were repeaters, violators of their probation or parole. And which it was spoke to me that it's a late for the halfway house coming out because the damage has been done. Get them before they go in. And that gave to these work camps and so forth that sprung up. When I left the Federal Bureau of Prisons, there were 35 institutions. Today, there's over 200 scattered all over in small units with, again, that thought of trying to avoid that rigid discipline of the prison atmosphere. Ray felt that education, religion, and counseling were the key elements in rehabilitating incarcerates and identifying and addressing individual needs through specialized testing of each prisoner was essential to the process. He noted the extent of violence and drug abuse that he had witnessed throughout his career, and it was and has always been part of the prison experience. Quote, after 38 years and the episodes that I experienced, I was kind of glad to get out of there, end quote. He also felt he saw the transition from, quote, the territory to more or less the modern, end quote, and the types of antisocial criminals that made it hard to stay ahead of the law violator. While he was working in the federal system, he actually received a, an award from President Kennedy. He says, quote, one memorable honor was received from President Kennedy when he selected Ray to represent the United States for a study of prison in Quito, Ecuador. In his retirement, he served in the National Association of Federal Employees, the Elks, the Crime Stoppers. Ray was also an active lobbyist for senior citizens' interests, end quote. While he was at Terminal Island after the assassination of President Kennedy, the chapel was packed by prisoners. I, I forgot to include this, but um, and everybody in the prison was mourning President Kennedy's assassination. I just thought that it was such a humanizing thing for all these people to come together and mourn the loss of the president, even behind walls. You know. Yeah. Now, how did others think of him? You remember Creepy Carpus, Alvin Carpus. He was transferred from Alcatraz in 1962 to McNeil Island, where Raymond recognized him. Creepy Carpus. Carpus, K-R-P-I-S. A kid that migrated from Canada into the States, lost in the population until he was picked up by the Barker gang. Well, anyway, he's now moved because of this notoriety with the Bob Barker gang. Incidentally, Barker was killed on Alcatraz when I was there in 46, the uh, Doc Barker. But on the other hand, uh, he went from one institution to Leavenworth, and when they opened up Alcatraz in 34, here come Carpus. And I I could see in this kid, uh, the, the life, reading his, his uh, case study, gosh, what an unfortunate beginning as a child. So time rolls along, four years there, and I go to McNeil Island. Who should transfer up here? But Carp was up, up there, too. So we were together again for another six years, I guess, or something like that, because I stayed there eight years that time before I went to Lewisburg. And I got acquainted with this guy. A lot of skill, a lot of talent. He could write. He, he run a newspaper for us up there. I forget what it was called now, Soundings or something like that. 
So I went to the warden. I says, uh, he's coming up for the, about the fourth time for parole. I said, maybe we'll put a plug in for this guy. Well, he joined me. And he was a venerable, capable, old-time warden. Long dead, I'm sure. Paul Madigan. We went to bat for him. That, kid, that guy went out, lived an admirable life, wrote his story. I think prisoner number one or something like that. And because of his notoriety, and in fact he was writing a book, he transferred, or he moved to a place in Spain. And he would write both the warden and myself from Spain over the years. And I'd, I'd answer him. That, to me, is it was just a classic. One in thousands or millions. But I, a certain amount of pride there you'd sense in that. That here's a kid. It come along as an orphan from another nation into our culture. He's adopted by somebody, and the peer pressures again take over, and here's a life of crime. Yeah, give me a give me a submachine gun, see, a Mar Barker. <laughs> now those are the stories that prevailed in those days, and those are the. There's a certain fascination about prison work. Public Enemy Number One. That was Carpus. Public Enemy Number One. And that was in the late twenties and the thirty, early thirties, late twenties. And uh, every state, every institution has them, I'm sure, that uh, you trace back through the, the family history and you see neglect, abuse, tremendous mismanagement somehow. How can you compensate when they get in trouble from a criminal standpoint and come to your attention where the court says, the law says, I want this five years on this okay? Oh, you have this fellow. You're charged with keeping him, number one. That's number one. Beyond that, in the back of your mind, you, what can I do to have this guy leave us and stay out? Well, there's my philosophy. If you can do it, catch him before they go in. Uh, but not everybody was his biggest fan. So Bill Sanders says... Raymond May was a... Old administrator warden type from McNeil Island. He was an old federal federal warden. And at that time, the warden was kind of the director, too. I mean, he was the stud duck here. Right. And uh, I personally didn't particularly care for the man. Uh, I thought he was, uh, it was part of that liberal thing, you know, the the way it was swinging. He had a, he had a little relative. His name was Jeffies. And the two of them together, you know, they took our badges away. They took... They took our all the authority away, and so you were walking around with four hundred and some guys out on that on that compound. Uh, you had, you know, it was always uh, if you wanted something done, you had to go back through them to let them give the order. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not a fanatic for lording anything over anybody. But when something needs to be done, it's got to be done right then, not two days later. All in all, I didn't care for the man. I thought that he was, I, th- I thought that maybe when he retired from McNeil Island, he should have gone and found himself a rocking chair someplace and, and stayed there. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. Okay. Um, what about, the, okay, so that that's, that's how he ran the prison, but then personally, was he... Sort of an easy person to talk to, or difficult, or very, very, very difficult. Uh, 
if you were just a, a correctional officer, mm -hmm. he didn't know you from third base. He could care less. Just wasn't interested. Yeah. So mm. Bill was not a big fan of of Raymond and the shift. It contributed to the uncertain atmosphere. And you know, if correctional officers are feeling uncertain, they don't like the changes that are going on above them. It's gonna reflect down through the rest of the prison population. And then Roy Groom talks about. You said that Orville Stiles had made some changes in the rules and and things. Did either Abrams or Kerry change things back again then after Stiles left or not? Or not too much. It was just darn near impossible after you uh, re uh, relax rules and stuff to be able to go go back. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. I hadn't mm -hmm. thought about that. And what about Raymond May? That's one man I, I just didn't like. That's all I've got to say about him. <laughs> Did he make changes in the way the prison was run? or? I really don't know how, as far as being in here, what, he, uh, what changes he, that he didn't make. So you're talking more about his personality mm -hmm. than... Well, he's, he's one of the guys who got me to leave, leave the penitentiary. Oh. Can, can you, do you mind telling me what happened? Or? Well, I don't mind at all. I had my inmates out work, working in, uh, in the field. It uh, was out to about 8, 9 o'clock at night, and they they come in, and they gave them two, two dry pieces of bread and an old piece of cheese, and that and, and that was their supper. I, I told them they didn't have to eat that kind of food. And so it, it went on, on from then, on from that, and finally I, I just... Uh, uh, transferred over to the mental health unit and they closed it down and I left the penitentiary that out for good. So, was that Raymond May's decision that to just give the inmates the bread? And, well, it or? was, uh he, uh, he wouldn't back me up when I, uh, I went to the food supervisor and complained about it. Well, I, I, I complained to, to the uh, inmate cook about it. And, and it went on. It got blown out all out of portion, but but uh, Raymond May took the inmates word to word over mine. Oh. And, and his food supervisor. Chet Stinnett said. So you obey. You know, when I first started work there, you didn't you didn't converse with an inmate on the yard. Oh. No, no, no way. If you were seen talking to an inmate on the yard. There was a good possibility that you were going to be calling on the carpet before the captain. What What's going on with you and this inmate? Is he trying to cut a deal with you or something or what? That's the way it was. Huh. You were allowed to say good morning or uh, hello to an inmate if he, if he was friendly toward you and, or if he greeted you. You were allowed to turn, return that greeting as a courtesy. But other than that, you didn't, you didn't stand around and converse with inmates. Later on, after Ray May came and he had the counselors, the, there wasn't no such animals as a counselor when I first started there, as far as I know. They had some, a couple of psychologists there, but counselor per se, I don't recall there being any in 1965. There was only four people in 1965 when I started there that ran the administration office. There was Lou Clapp, 
Mark Maxwell, the bookkeeper, I can't remember, McHenry, I think was his name, and Rachel Carey was on the telephone. And that was it. That was the only people in that little building outside the, the wall there by one tire going down the road on the left. That was the administration building. They had four people in there. <coughs> After Ray May came, you couldn't hardly walk through there for the, all the desks and everything that was in there. <laughs> it was amusing to some of us. There must have been 15 people in there in that one little building. Then the, the rule about guards talking, not talking to inmates, that, when did that change? Uh, it started changing when uh, all the styles took over. Things started to get more lax. And then uh, when Ray May came in, uh, they they had counselors and different people came in, you know. And that's when it really started to change then. But the whole system changed. It wasn't against the rules anymore. They felt that if you could talk to an inmate and try to correct him through a conversa having conversations with him, uh, convince him that uh, being a square john as the inmates called uh, street people that were an officers convince him that being a square john was his benefit when he got out of the penitentiary then uh, you were free to do so in other words the counselors felt that you were helping them if you could convince this guy that being a square john was the best way of life you know and of course, uh, in one way or another, I'm sure we all tried that because all of us are human, you know. And you're bound, sooner or later, to take a liking to one particular inmate or a couple of particular inmates. And you see this guy and you think, well, maybe I could help him be a good citizen if I just sat him down and talked to him and try to help him, you know. And so I'm sure that... Uh, most of the officers that worked there in later years did sooner or later try something on the, on somebody like that to see if it would more or less the, if for no other reason to see if it would work you know yeah I'm sure that I was instrumental in in turning several of them around not on, not only as a lieutenant but after I became supervisor in the in my section that uh in the lock shop, key control, and so forth. I had guys working for me that uh, went straight after they got out. Several of them never been back. And you think that things that you said or the way that you handled them was part of what made the difference? Or well, I'm sure it was, yeah. Yeah. What kinds of things would you tell them or what would you... Oh, about my life. I, I, I had conducted my life through uh, always being an honest law body Biting citizen, tell them about my family, you know. I have a wife, three, three children, which I'm very proud of, and uh, different things like that. Just more or less talking about general life things that uh, crime doesn't pay in the long run. It just, <laughs> look look where you're at today, you know. If you hadn't have did this, where would you, where would you be? Out on the streets, a free man.
So you tell me, how you how did you benefit by doing what you did and being here today? I'm curious how other guards at other institutions felt when Raymond started enacting these very pro-social progressive ideas. If it was a similar situation of like, we just have been maintaining law and order and now you're coming in and bringing you know, children into the site, you're bringing outside community members into the site and we're looking at these people as they can be corrected and not just as serving their punishment. So whole different philosophy that they all had to navigate. Working in corrections is difficult, particularly when the position of warden is typically a political position. Being tough on crime versus working with individuals on an individual level and seeking ways to help them in a place that is focused on punishment can stir up some resentment, obviously, as we've heard in some of these oral histories. Raymond May shifted Idaho Corrections from a punitive to a rehabilitative system. After guiding the transition from the old pen to the new current system, he retired in 1975. His career spanned 37 years in corrections. Now, Christine Brady did a fantastic job capturing Raymond May's thoughts about corrections uh, historically and even his take on the state of corrections in Idaho in the 1990s when the oral history was taken. Raymond saw the importance of a robust juvenile correctional system that is in place today and noted the amount of peer pressure kids face today. He felt that, quote, it's a shame because you can't undo what has taken place in the family, end quote. In closing the interview and reflecting on how far Idaho had become in corrections, he stated, I have no end of admiration for what is being done in this state, and I regret that I can't go out and at least pass the time of day with your new director. Ray received many letters from former residents he worked with, even some that he worked with originally at Alcatraz. Quote, I still look back with some pride, he said about his time working as a warden. When Chris Brady asked him what he was most pleased with in his entire career, he said, quote, to have been part of the progress that was made, to have seen the introduction of the resident psychologist, the caseworker with a degree in social work, to make a determination of what about his individual that we were going to work with, end quote. He was upset that the average age was lower and blamed it on a lack of discipline in society. Raymond May returned to his home in Washington. He passed away at the age of 95 on January 23, 2003. His funeral service was held at the University Place Presbyterian Church on January 30, 2003. Quote, Raymond was a loving and devoted husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He is survived by his wife, Carol, daughter, Karen, sons, Doug and Bruce, six grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. If by chance you wish to remember Ray, do it with a kind deed or word to someone who needs you. Instead of flowers, consider donating to the University Place Presbyterian Youth Program or Habitat for Humanity, end quote. Hmm. Those are the words from his obituary, which I just thought, man, that kind of grace and empathy, compassion that he had, even to his death, like his family wanted that to be passed on. And I hope that listeners today do the same thing. Do a good deed for somebody. Share a good word. Give somebody a compliment today. <laughs> so his obituary served as basically the roadmap for my research. It documented all of his moves, all of his position changes throughout his life. And it was the only rope that I could hold on to as I followed his career in corrections at so many institutions throughout the country. He saw firsthand the different ways the states enforced the criminal justice system. And I think that he really ushered in 
modern corrections here in Idaho. And I'm very curious if he had not been the one to transition from, you know, the old pen to the current institution, what today's corrections would look like in Idaho. Just the development of the writer program. I've met so many people who went through that system and thank God for it because, you know, they were processed, they weren't institutionalized, they got the help they needed and stayed out of trouble from there. So I think a lot of listeners may also know somebody who's gone through that system and oh man, what what an incredible forward thinking thing to develop. And that is Raymond yeah. May. <laughs> That's that's very cool. Good job, Sky. Good job, Anthony. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't know any of that, and that's very cool. And and like you said, the the empathy that he had for these residents when the CEOs they saw the the residents as something different than Ray did, I think, and uh, that is it, it's such an admirable position to take um, to to look at residents and say. I know that you are worth more than the reason that you're in here, which I think is is such a common way of seeing corrections and incarcerations. And yeah, I I like love everything that he did. Whenever I'm giving a tour and we're in maximum, I always use it as a way to reflect on why they needed a maximum security and why it's so important to have different levels, to have farm work and work camps as well as halfway homes and how are we reintroducing and how are we treating for different levels of crime because there there are different levels of crime and those individuals need different things in order to rehabilitate to be punished to hopefully hopefully not commit the same crime again when they get out He's just an impressive individual. And it's how I felt when I when I talked about Snook. I was just like, yeah. wow, guards are there, but he's the one hopping on the horse chasing down escapees in the 1900s. You know, and there's this Lou Clapp who's developing all these different programs. It's just incredible that I feel like this prison's history always had the right person in charge at the right time to really propel forward and i love learning about these guys it's amazing so i apologize there's no blood guts and gore this episode we will get to that in future episodes (laughs) this is a true crime podcast but you know i thought what better way to kick off you know 50 years since this prison closed down than talking about the guy who kind of brought us into this modern day so well well done that's that's a very cool story and thank you for bringing that to our attention because i didn't know that much about Raymond May. I just know the name. Right. Yeah, and, I didn't uh, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, very cool. All right. Well, great work, Sky. Thanks for everything and uh let's do this again sometime. <laughs> I know. Let's let's uh, not wait so long to get together. <laughs> Serious. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Got to always remember uh do your own time. Do your own number. Have a good one, everybody. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. I interviewed from my own personal perspective and understanding. The inmates? Yeah. Everyone that came in. McNeil Allen, Lewisburg, and, and uh, Latuna, Texas. 
And I, in my own judgment and from experience, I gained a, a personal insight. Not always right, but I, I knew where I thought the direction lay if there was some ability, some opportunity to, to restore the individual to a law-abiding existence. So I uh, followed that procedure right to the end.